On today's podcast, I interview Virginia Briggs. Virginia has been a friend of my wife's for over 50 years, and I've known her for over 35 years. I never really had a chance to sit down with her and talk to her about her breast cancer experience. Also during the podcast, you'll hear some papers, but that's Virginia's extensive notes that she wrote down in detail so that she would be prepared. So let's meet Virginia. She doesn't know the dress. Her hair is always a mess. If you catch a stealing, she won't confess. She's beautiful. Smokes a pack a day. You can wait, that's me, but anyway. She doesn't care a thing about that. Hey, she thinks I'm beautiful. Meet Virginia. How you doing? Good, Dennis. How are you? Good, good. Okay. Start you off with a really soft, easy question. What is the best board game? The best board game? I Scrabble. Okay, you're wrong. It's part cheesy. Anyway, <laughs> first question. First question. Okay, so like when a guy goes and he gets a uh, the cough cough test, right? Yes. That's really easy. But when a woman goes and gets a mammogram, that's pretty painful, right? It can be for some people. It's very uncomfortable, but it wasn't painful. Okay. So how often were you getting mammograms? Like, did you start to get them yearly when you were 50 or did you get them before 50? I got it at 34, my first mammogram, because I had two younger cousins who were diagnosed at that age. Okay. When did you first, when were you first told that you had the signs of possibility of having a a breast cancer? It was, I was 49, 2013, and I had suspicious calcium deposits, which required further testing, which literally happened in a matter of hours. What what additional testing did they have to do? Well, after the, it was the day after Memorial Day, I had an 8 a.m. appointment because I was going to go back to work and I had my mammogram. There were suspicious calcium deposits. So they said I needed an ultrasound. And the ultrasound technician had just walked in the door. So they snuck me in before her first nine o'clock appointment. And she performed the ultrasound. Then they said I needed to have it read by the radiologist. He just walked in the door. He repeated the ultrasound and said I needed a biopsy. And it was almost like a miracle 
the breast cancer coordinator hadn't even taken off her coat and I'm waiting in her office. And she called, um, she said she scheduled me for a appointment with a breast surgeon. She looked, she gave me a list of names and said, do you, you know, do you have a preference? And I just stared blankly. And she said, I like this group. Let me call them. I don't know if anyone's even in the office because it was only 10 of nine. And she called and said, they had a cancellation. They could see you at 10 o'clock. And I'm like, okay. So I called work and said, I'm going to be really late. Drove to the surgeon who repeated the ultrasound and said, if you can come back at one, I can do a biopsy. I later found out that that is breast surgeon takes usually four months to get an appointment with her. And I got it within an hour. So you basically were going for a yearly breast exam for the yearly mammogram. And when you get the mammogram, that's when they see something and they tell you to come back the next day. Not the next day. It was literally 10 minutes later that I had to have further testing. Wow. And you didn't, I mean, I know women do self-exams. You didn't feel anything abnormal? It was not. It was very small and early stages. So it would have been at least another year. You know, I don't know how rapidly it would, but it was very small. So there was no way I would have felt it. Wow. And when they tell you this, what's your reaction? Well, I was, to be honest with you, I kind of was very calm, which was surprising. I was all by myself because I didn't really expect this all to happen so quickly. And my husband was working. So I just went to all these appointments myself. And I don't know, I was just very calm. The, all the, the doctor was so kind and reassuring that I wasn't really even nervous. Is that unusual for you? I think so. I'm I pa- I'm a panic person. Did you call anybody up before these procedures were done, or it just happened so quick that it was just boom, 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 and then? I I only called work because I called saying, I'm going to be late. I'll probably be in at lunchtime. And then I called back and said, I'm not coming in at all. And then I did call uh, my husband and say, you know, I have more tests to do. But and I was you were very still, calm were, about it. Yeah, you were still calm on the phone. How was he? I think he was fine. Yeah. So after the test, they do the biopsy. What do they tell you? It took, I think it was two days later that the surgeon called me and I was at work and said, you know, I'm sorry to tell you, but you have breast cancer. And you're still calm. I did break down and I went into my boss's office and um, it was like 3, 3.30 and I told her what happened and, and then I said, I'm going home. But I wasn't hysterical. Did you tell your cousins? Well, I, my two cousins had passed away 
some time before that, but there were five sisters. So they were probably the second people I told, I called to find out more about my cousins who had passed. Do you think that helped you or hurt you? I felt my cousin's presence the whole time. And I think they've been my guiding light, my two angel cousins. Right. So you get the news to breast cancer. What's the next step after that? A treatment regimen. And what is that? Well, it takes a little bit of time because they have to find out the biology of your tumor. You know, when you hear breast cancer, you think generic breast cancer, but it's very, it's not generic. There are so many variations, which I never knew. I mean, there's something called ductal, invasive, lobular, and like HER2 positive, you know, HER2 progesterone and estrogen and whether they're positive or negative depends on your treatment. So there are many, many factors in your treatment. And until they know what you have, they tell you what treatment you need. Right. Where did you get your treatment? Did you have to go down to Philadelphia? I got it. It's well, I had my surgery at St. Mary and then my treatment, um, at the local oncologist. So I did not, since mine was stage one, I did not go to one of the renowned cancer hospitals. Can you explain what each stage is? Stage one is where it has not um, progressed to the lymph nodes. Stage two is is in your lymph nodes. I'm not sure about stage three, how exactly, maybe it's the amount of lymph nodes involvement. And then stage, stage four is um, terminal, basically. There's, um, it's pretty, it's not always um, you know, depending on how far along it is. Stage four, is, it has spread to other organs in the body. Okay. Did they give you options when they told you you had breast cancer, meaning remove a portion of the breast cancer or give you an option of a double mastectomy? Yes. Since mine was relatively early and there was no lymph node involvement, I could have had a lumpectomy. Um, I could have had a single mastectomy. But after talking to my cousins who had, you know, supported their sisters through their breast cancer, I decided I was going to have a bilateral because I didn't want to have to in a couple years down the line, have a recurrence in my mind. How was that decision for you to make? Was that a tough one? It was initially, 
because when I, when you're, when I was diagnosed, my surgeon makes, made me go to the radiation oncologist for a, and she told you what was involved if you had that treatment. Then I had to go to the plastic surgeon and he told you what was involved and he had pictures and they were quite graphic as you can imagine. And I walked out of there. I am not doing that. And I thought about it. I had found this wonderful support group called the Bucks County Breast Friends. And it's a very private um, Facebook group. You have to be invited. No one else can see it unless you're a member. And um, there's a lot of discussion going on. And I was reading other people's experiences. And some of them did have recurrences. So when I read theirs, I completely changed my thought. And I said, you know, I'm going to do the bilateral. And just hopefully put it behind me. When you do the bilateral, there's zero chance? Or... No, it, there's, there's not zero chance. You know, sometimes a surgeon is not able to get all the cells. There's, you know, rogue cells in there. And um, plus there are different variations. Like I said, there's estrogen driven, progesterone driven, the HER2 and... Um, So, when you say when you say graphic pictures, I guess you're describing scars. Before and after pictures, yes, of the woman's anatomy before he she went for surgery, and then all the scars, and then you see the end. Um, depending on the treatment you had, there are multiple ways for reconstruction. Some people choose not to have it. You can have. Um, implants put in, or you can have very um, extensive surgery where they use your, you know, stomach or um, other muscles in your body to recreate your, your breasts. Right. Do they have you go to, for any mental or uh, psychological counseling before you do the procedure? would imagine if you need it but no they there's no psychological counseling required so to speak how does your family react you had two children that were probably early 20s maybe teenagers at the time how were they Lindsay was just graduating high school and i i I'm not sure how they reacted because I think I was fairly calm. And so I don't think they were really too upset. And I think that with the excitement <clears throat> of Lindsay going off to college, you know, I don't want to say overshadowed, but that was something so positive that we were focused on that and not on me. And I was glad she was going away because I didn't know how my treatment would be. And I didn't want her to see me sick. So I was relieved that she was going to be away at college and not, you know, you see these pictures of women, you know, no hair on oxygen. And I did not 
to expect, but I was glad that she was not going to be there to witness it. How about Sean? I actually don't remember where Sean was, if Sean was at school or in the reserves. I'm not actually sure about him, but again, I don't think since we just gave a little matter of fact what happened and we were both calm about it, I don't think that they were in, you know, it made them uncomfortable or scared. Had you ever cried in front of your kids? I cry at commercials. Okay, I got you. (laughs) So, so you, in a way, it was reassuring for you and Jim, Lindsay's not home. Sean's really not at the house a lot. So you could be yourself and not be strong in front of your children. Correct. How was Jim when it was just you and him? I think at first he was visibly shaken, but when he saw how I was taking it, I did not need comfort. Like I wasn't, I don't want to say I didn't need comfort, but I wasn't, you know, breaking down at the drop of a hat. So I think that he followed my lead. I'm sure he was nervous. He didn't, you know, share his fears too much because we didn't know. We really didn't know. Are, are you religious? I would say I'm spiritual. You know, I don't go to church every week. I don't go to church every month. I try to, but I'm very spiritual. How soon, give me a time frame from when they told you you had breast cancer to when you had the surgery. I was diagnosed in May. Um, I think June, I found out I needed chemotherapy, which I was not expecting. That was a shock to me. I did not think because I was having a bilateral mastectomy and it was early, I was quite shocked that I needed chemotherapy. Apparently on May 3rd, the protocol change from the American Cancer Society. And if you were HER2 positive, which I was, and that's a more aggressive form, no matter how big your tumor was, the um, treatment was chemotherapy. So that was my biggest shock. I think that was harder than anything that I would need chemotherapy. And I had my surgery in July. And then I started chemotherapy maybe a month after that so that's a three-month span so to speak so the chemotherapy explain how that affected you psychologically and your body I was very fortunate I had to go every three weeks I think I had 24 treatments eight eight treatments Every three weeks, I had one. So total of 24 weeks. It's been so long, I forget. But I made friends in the chemo room. We really bonded with each other. There was a a wonderful woman I had met at the support group who worked in the hospital. She came to see me on her lunch break when she knew I had chemotherapy. 
And I was just so touched that, you know, this woman I had known for weeks had come to see me and comfort me during this time. Thank God it was pre-COVID. I don't know how people were able to do this during COVID without, you know, emotional support from a friend or family member. If you or anyone that you know has a story that you or they would like to share with me, please reach out to me via Facebook. I would really love to hear your story about how you overcame adversity. Hey, most of you know that I wrote a book, but for those who don't, my book is called As Far As The Eye Can See. It depicts my struggle while losing my vision. It is available on Amazon in paperback and Kindle. Now, back to the podcast. You found friends through this. Did you have a large group of friends before this? I did, but the cancer, you know, the friends I met through the Bucks County Breast Friends really knew what you were going through. And here they're sitting right next to you in the chemo chair, you know. You describe the Breast Friends. What exactly is that and what do they do? It is a support group that was started by um, my surgeon, Dr. Beth Dupree. It started out in her kitchen and it grew to many, many members and continues to grow. And, you know, we're just a support group. We have monthly meetings. We're on Facebook. Um, it has, it's part of the Healing Consciousness Foundation, which Dr. Dupree founded, where it gives you alternative um, med medicine, so to speak. You know, when you're diagnosed, she'll give you these healing certificates that you can use for practitioners in the group, whether it be um, for lymphedema, um, massage, picture. There is stuff, um, Reiki, and things to help you deal with surgery and the after effects. So it's a group of women, and, you know, we share our story. And it's a very... It's very helpful because there's always somebody going through what you're going through. And there's many different things that people go through, like the different surgeries or the, you know, different diagnosis. There's somebody who shares your story and you can benefit from their experience. How were you when you started to lose your hair? That was very hard. I lost my hair 10 days after I'm going to cry. My first treatment. And it was the day my mother passed away. So it was hard. But the fact that I lost my mother really didn't, I didn't focus as much on losing my hair. Did you wear scarves or did you just rock it? I wore a wig twice. I wore the wig to her funeral. And I think I wore another day. It was very itchy and I didn't like it. <laughs> I wore hats all the time. And it's very cold with a bald head. I, I wore a lot of, 
I didn't realize how cold I would be. And I don't know how men who have no hair, you know, go outside because I was cold. I just wore a hat, you know, a, in the summer, maybe a baseball hat. And then in the colder months, you know, a stocking cap of sorts. How long did you not have your hair? Like when did it start to grow back? My treatment didn't end till I want to say February. So I would say maybe by June or July that I had a decent amount of hair. Very See, it's short. no big deal for a guy, right? But for a girl or woman, that's that's a big deal. Yes. And again, my support group, my best friend, I had a friend that I met. I saw her at the mall with her children, young children, walking around with a bald head. And I was like, wow, like, it wasn't so bad, you know, to see how other people, you know, weren't embarrassed or, you know, the strength that they had to go out in public with a bald head. I at least wore a hat because I, you know, I, I only went bald at home and at my support group meetings. Other than that, I wore a hat. You could see I was bald. The one time I was at a, a yard sale, a flea market, and a woman came up to me and gave me a breast cancer scarf and said, I just wanted to share this with you. You know, I was a survivor. And so she saw that I was bald and gave me a scarf, a complete stranger. But some people, you know, you'll, you would never know they had no hair because they have the wig and, you know, you're not obvious. It was just uncomfortable for me. And, and I never look in the mirror. So I, I looked because I was not a person that looked in the mirror very often. Did you get weird looks out in public? I don't think. No, I didn't. I didn't. You know, and Halloween rolled around. I had actually a chemo treatment that morning, Halloween. I came in dressed as Mr. Clean. <laughs> So I tried uh, well, to embrace it. And, you know, even Halloween, I don't know if the kids really knew. One little girl's like, oh, that's a great costume. Little, I don't know if they really knew that it was really me. So I tried to embrace it and make the best out of a, a bad situation. I thought you were going to say Uncle Fester. <laughs> no, did I just... The, how did the chemo affect your body? Yes, your hair, but did it make you weak? I had chemo on, I was still working throughout chemo. I would have chemo on Thursday. It was all day, so I did not go to work on Thursday. I went to work on Friday and Saturday and Sunday. No kidding, I slept 20, 24 hours. I just slept away the weekend. And Monday I got back to work and I was tired. But I was very fortunate that I did not have any adverse effects, serious adverse effects, because a lot can happen to people depending on, you know, your chemo treatment and the way your body reacts to it. I was very blessed to have minimal reactions, but I slept literally 20 out of 24 hours that on the weekends I had chemo. Did you lose a lot of weight? Did it does it take away your appetite? For me, it did not. <laughs> what happens after all of that you're with this group 
then you started when you got your strength back. I know that you started to do boat racing. Yes. Uh, one of uh, best friends found out that, you know, dragon boat racing helped women with breast cancer, um, preventing lymphedema, which is, you know, arms after you have your lymph nodes removed and she investigated and found a, a somewhat local team a breast cancer survivor team and there was like a dozen of us that joined and it was again another support group we were called we're called the majestic dragons c-h-e-s-t and it's new jersey's first breast cancer survivor dragon boat team and it was another wonderful bonding experience with women who were going through similar situations. Had you ever been athletic? No, <laughs> I'm not an athlete at all. And I'm still not an athlete, but we call this a, a floating support group. There are women in all different stages. We have 80 year old women who still paddle. So there are people, you know, recently out of surgery there's people who are you know 30 years out of surgery so there's a big variety of, of ability and that's the good thing it doesn't matter is it competitive it can be we are really not a competitive organization again we are a breast cancer survivor group we have supporters on our team as well but it's more about the camaraderie and the health benefits than competing. We did go to Italy um, a few years ago for the International Breast Cancer Survivor Dragon Boat Team. And it's more about the experience. Where did you go in Italy? We were in, um, now my mind is blank. My mind blanks. And um, does this happen, I don't know happen often? Old. We were in Florence, Florence, Italy. <laughs> And where did you race? Um, in Florence or was yes, there other? in Florence on one of the rivers right there. And I don't remember what it was called. Okay. Can you explain to everybody listening what happened one time to when you went to an eye doctor? <laughs> and <laughs> I know this is going to come <laughs> up. That was my ace in my sleeve. I... Went to the, pla not the plastic surgeon, the, this is way before anything. I went to the dermatologist, like my first dermatologist visit and they examine you and I have all these bumps and things on my arm, non-cancerous, but I also have these things called cafe au lait spots, which are big light brown spots. And she can, and I have freckling under my armpit. And she said, you know, I think this is called neurofibromatosis way to diagnosis is you go to the eye doctor and he looks in your eyes for lish nodules and so i went to the eye doctor and i told him why i was there and you know why i the, the um dermatologist had suspected and so i was telling him i had the spots and the can you can you show me now he had his assistant with there so i took off my shirt so he could see the spots under my armpit and for some reason when i told that story at a friend's wedding 
you know, you who have been to multiple eye doctor's appointments, mouth dropped and said, I have never been asked to take off my shirt at the eye doctor. <laughs> did you did you call the cops? <laughs> it, it was legit. Okay. What are you reading? I know you still don't believe it, but it really eh, whatever. was. Whatever. <laughs> Getting back to your story, I'm sure there were women that you knew that did not make it through? Yes. And that's the hardest part is losing the friends that you. Is that, do you have survivor's guilt? I, to be honest with you, I, we all, you know, as a group, we <clears throat> live our best lives in their memory, so to speak, you know. Does your daughter get checked or is that too soon? Yes, she's 27. So no, she is, you know, just when she goes for her appointments, self-exams is really all they do at this age. Um, unless, of course, you know, you have to be vigilant even at a young age and give yourself breast exams because, you know, I have met women my daughter's age who have been diagnosed. And that's a very scary thing. What do you do now as far as the boat racing? Are you a mentor? We, we still have a team. So I, I, we just started going back on the lake last week. I would not say I'm a mentor, but, you know, with the with the other organization, the Bucks County Breast Friends, we have fundraisers. We um, have, you know, 5K walks and and comedy shows where we try to raise funds for the organization. And that's a big part of, you know, what I do, so to speak. Looking back now on your, what you've gone through, are you surprised with how strong you were? And because, yes, I mean, very I know surprised. that with me, I... Did you ever get depressed? You know, I had sad moments. I don't think I was ever depressed, to be honest with you. Um, I always tried to stay positive. It actually turned me, I was very negative before. I was always a glass is half empty kind of person. And it truly changed me to a glass is half full person. You know, I'm more grateful for every day. I see the positive, not the negative. Instead of saying, oh, I got a flat tire. It's like, oh, I got a flat tire, but at least, you know, I didn't get in an accident. So I see the positive in almost every situation as opposed to the negative, which was my attitude before that. And even my family will tell you, I have a complete change in my perspective. Where do you think that comes from? my support group, to be honest with you. Do you think it's because, <clears throat> excuse me, do you think it's because when you went to that support group, you saw others that were in worse shape than you? No, we, it's a very positive support group. And I saw people who were, it's, it's not a, oh, woe is me kind of support group. You know, we gave each other strength. And I got my strength from them, I believe. 
it's a, a not a negative. People can be, af- I think some people are afraid of support groups, but this was different. It was everything to me. This was the single most um, important aspect in my healing journey, I truly believe. Are you on medications now? I was on a hormone blocker, but it caused osteoporosis. So the doctor took, <clears throat> took me off of it last year, and I'm waiting to go back for some more tests to see, you know, the results of that. Because again, mine was HER2 positive, which is, you know, more aggressive. So this is like a tamoxifen. I know, I'm sure people have heard of tamoxifen. I was on that for a year and then another estrogen blocker for five years. Um, you're supposed to be on it 10 years. Some people are on it for, for the rest of their lives. And luckily, again, I had no adverse reactions, but I did get osteoporosis from it. So, When you talk about getting back to your double mastectomy, getting uh, a plastic surgeon involved, then you did get the, I don't know what they call them, fake breasts? Yeah, silicone implants, yes. Silicone implants. That That's much more <laughs> <laughs> medical term than what I said. How did that go? It was, for me, again, it was seamless. I have a lot of friends who it was much more painful. So after my surgery, and it really depends on how big or small you were before your surgery. Since I was relatively small-breasted, they put in, at my bilateral mastectomy, they put in um, expanders. And you have to go and go to the plastic surgeon and get saline injection to expand and expand your um, skin for the implant. And for some people, that's very, very painful. You know, you go every week until you're the size you want to be, you know, and they said water to expand your, your skin. It wasn't uncomfortable for me. For some people, it's very painful. And then when you get to the size you want, you go for your so-called exchange surgery, where you go back into the hospital, they remove the expanders and put in the silicone implants. How how painful is that afterwards? And I know you said it wasn't for you, but it's got to be a little strange. It was, you know, I am not a person to handle pain. And throughout my surgeries, I did not take one pain pill. Again, I don't know why, if it was, I cannot tolerate pain. And I think that was my biggest fear, but maybe I basically had minimal pain that I didn't need anything more than an Advil. Through all of this, obviously good comes from it. And I think that's the way you have to look at it because you're a different person than you were before. Definitely. And do you ever think about what you would have been like if you had never gone through this? I do. I'm a much happier person now, to be honest with you. I, it, it was a, you know, had positive consequences, let's just say. I'm much right. happier. I'm much more grateful 
than I ever was before. And you have good news in your life. Your daughter's getting married in March? Yes. March. And you know what that's like because you have one getting married as well much sooner. Yeah. Yeah. What What's the preparation like for that? Oh, it's crazy. Let's just say crazy. Much different than when we got married. That's for sure. Right. Well, I want to thank you for sharing your story. This wasn't too bad, right? No, it wasn't. To be honest, I wrote notes so I would remember what to say and that I wouldn't, you know, break down and cry when I said something. It sounded like you were reading the comics. You kept on turning the paper. <laughs> oh, you heard that? The newspaper. You heard that? No, it was my note. Oh, yeah. So I would remember, you know, what to say. Like when you, you asked me about all, certain still things. Have all those notes. Like losing my hair. I had noted that down there. Like, Well, good. Good. Well, thank you for sharing your story. I know it, it probably wasn't easy, but hopefully somebody that's listening to this, it'll help them out. And that's why I talk about it a lot because people talking about their stories help me. And I really want to help somebody else. And that's why I'm very open to talking about it at any time, basically. Well, I thank you once again. And uh, I'm really proud of you. Oh, thank you. All right. Take care, Virginia. All right. Bye, Dennis. Bye.